Once again, good morning, church family. As was mentioned, now the real camp meeting begins. All of the superficiality is over with. Now we're getting down to business. Amen? No, no, it's already been a blessing. I don't know if you've enjoyed camp meeting and been blessed so far, but I have, and I hope it has been a wonderful experience for you. And as you recall, in our morning sessions here, we've been going through the book of Acts. We're looking at the early church learning first-generation lessons for last-generation believers. We want to be the church God has called us to be, what he needs us to be, what he wants us to be to hasten his soon coming. In our opening message, we looked at the idea that the early church believers, those in Acts chapter 2, not only heard the word of God and were convinced by it, they were cut to the heart, convicted by it, and more than even that, they yielded their will and were converted. They were convinced, convicted, and converted. They were cut to the heart. Of course, we saw in Acts chapter 7 that that same process happened with the leaders of the Sanhedrin. They were also convinced of the truth. They were convicted by the truth, but they did not yield their heart. They stubbornly closed their ears, and they were not converted. So what we want to do is not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Put it into practice and be truly converted people. Then we saw that after their conversion... After that initial experience where they yielded to the word of God, that the early church believers continued in the doctrine, in fellowship. They kept studying the word of God, and we made the application that we need a generation of Bible-believing Seventh-day Adventists who will not just have a one-time experience, but will continue through daily study, through attendance in church function, and growth in all areas as the Bible indicates. The Bible does not teach that salvation is a transaction to get you into heaven. It's a transformation to fit you into the kingdom of heaven. So that's what we want to do is continue steadfastly in the doctrine and in fellowship, in breaking bread, and in prayers so that we can be the last generation of people to represent the character of God and hasten the soon coming of Jesus. Now let me ask you, has everything that I just reviewed rung bells in your mind? Are we all on the same page now? Good. So now we're going to move forward in our study, and our message this morning is entitled, The Evidence of Divinity. The Evidence of Divinity. But before we do any study in God's Word, of course, we need to begin with a word of prayer. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful, crisp Monday morning. I thank you for allowing us to be alive for it. And I thank you for this particular time during the day when we can come apart from the rest of the world. Before the day gets going and humming and busy with all kinds of other activities. But Lord, we want to start on a foundation of your word. So Lord, help us to see the truth this morning. Cutting as it may be. Help us to allow the word of God to sink down past the superficial, past the skin and go into the very heart of each one of us. Help us to see the example of Jesus Christ and help us to learn to be like Christ even now. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Now this is going to be one of those studies where we have a study before we get to the book of Acts, but we're going to look at the life of Christ for a little bit and see the, uh, the believer's experience with something like that in the book of Acts. But let me start with this premise. Throughout his entire, not just public ministry, but his entire life, including his public ministry, for over 30 years, Jesus faced the same challenge. His identity was constantly being questioned. There was always some sort of rumor mill doubt as to about his genuine 
authenticity. Is he what he claims to be? His enemies, his friends, his family, and even the prophetically appointed forerunner, each at different times, doubted his call and his identity. So I'd like us to begin our study this morning by looking at several examples of what Christ faced in his life, and more importantly, not just the doubts he faced, but the answer, the one answer, the consistent answer that Jesus gave every time this question arose. Who are you? Are you truly the Son of God? Let's look at a few examples. Let's first look at the attacks by his enemy. Take out your Bibles with me. Let's go to John chapter 10. The Gospel of John Chapter 10, we'll begin with verse 22. It says, now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. <laughs> I often wonder what Jerusalem winter is like to people reading this from northern Michigan or something. <laughs> like, oh, adorable little winter over there. But, but it was winter for them, but... The context continues, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in, what's the word? Doubt. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now notice Jesus' answer. Jesus answered them, I told you. Now, that's an interesting thing. They said, tell us plainly. He said, I've already said it. So what does he want them to do? Say it again? Is that what they want him to do? No. Jesus answered him and said, I told you, and you do not believe me. And then he adds this line, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. And he goes on, let's skip down now, to verse 31. They apparently did not like this answer and the explanation that Christ offered because look at the response. Then the Jews took up stones against him to stone him, again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? It's like, am I seriously in trouble for healing people, for being kind, for being helpful? What is your problem? And notice they say, the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself what? God. The issue they have is his claim to be divine. And then Jesus goes on to explain. Let's skip down now to verse 37. This is the salient point. Now we could read all through it, but I want to hit the high points this morning. Verse 37, Jesus says, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. Notice that Christ makes the evidence of his divinity the good works he does in the Father's name. And he says, if I don't do those, don't believe my words. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, Though you do not believe me, that is my words, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus said, far beyond anything I say, judge me, compare my works with what God's character is, 
and see if it doesn't match. Disregard my own claims. Look at the evidence of the works themselves and believe me or not based on that. He makes the evidence of his divinity the good works that he does in the Father's name. Let's continue in the Gospel of John. Let's go to chapter 14. It was not only his enemies who asked this question, who doubted his connection to the Father, his claim of divinity. But let's go to John chapter 14 and see this has happened amongst his disciples as well. John chapter 14, starting with verse 7. Jesus speaks. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. So Christ has been trying to say, what I have been showing you, I have been saying to you, I am one with the Father. If you've seen him, you've seen me. And he says, no, no, really, show us the Father. They had a picture of Christ that he wasn't like fully God. He was maybe a demigod or a kind of God or a man from God, but not actually connected to the divine himself. Show us the Father. We want to see God. And Jesus' response, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you have not known me, Philip? You didn't know who you were looking at? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Now notice his explanation again. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Now, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or, so either you can take my word for it, or else believe me for the sake of the what? Works themselves. The same answer he gives to the Jews. I already told you with words, but you don't believe me. Let's look at my works. He comes to his own disciples. He says, do you not believe me? All right, fine, don't take my word for it, but take my works for it. That's the evidence of divinity. Is Christ-like or God-like good works? Now, fascinatingly, the Bible doesn't tell us much about the growing up time of Jesus. We know the story of his birth. We also know the story about his 12-year-old trip to the Passover and seeing the lamb and all of those things and going toe-to-toe with the leaders, and he was a scholar in his own right at that point. But for most of his youth and young adulthood, the Bible leaves us kind of in the dark. Obviously, the focus is on the public ministry of Jesus, and that makes sense. That's what they knew of him. But we get a little behind-the-scenes picture of what was going on in Christ's life prior to his public work, but after the age of 12, in his youth and young adulthood from the book, The Desire of Ages. And one of the insights we see is that even his own mother had doubts about his genuine identity. I want to read to you. This is from Desire of Ages, page 92. Desire of Ages, 92. Speaking of Jesus' mother, Mary, says, At times she wavered between Jesus and his brothers. Remember, his brothers ridiculed him, didn't really, uh, and his mother kind of had this balance going on. At times she wavered between Jesus and his brothers, who did not believe that he was the Son of God, the sent of God. But, listen carefully, evidence was abundant 
that his was a divine character. Okay? She saw him sacrificing himself for the good of others. Statement continues. Jesus, now listen very carefully here. Don't want to mess up this, but I want to be clear. Jesus was the healer of the body as well as of the soul. Now this is before his public ministry. This is during his youth and young adult ages. Jesus was the healer of the body as well as of the soul. Now don't get me wrong. That does not say he was out there raising the dead and making lepers jump. Which, you know, It wasn't this. But she explains what she means. Jesus was the healer of the body as well as of the soul. He was interested in every phase of suffering that came under his notice. And to every sufferer he brought relief. His kind words having a soothing balm. None could say that he had worked a miracle. But virtue, the healing power of love, went out from him to the sick and distressed. Thus, in an unobtrusive way, he worked for the people from his very childhood. Now listen to this next sentence. When I first read it, it kind of was fascinating. And this, speaking of all those beneficence and benevolence that he lived out in his life, the doing good for others, even without the grand miraculous work, just the saying a kind word, doing a kind deed. And this was why, after his public ministry began, so many heard him gladly. It kind of dawned on me that Jesus has been laying the groundwork and preparing the soil of the heart among the people for years before his public ministry began. Thus, when he was ready to speak the truth, they had hearts ready to receive it. And again, the evidence for his divinity that his mother was looking for and noticed was not his good works and his big proclamations, even his big sermons, because he wasn't preaching sermons. He wasn't declaring himself. But there was evidence in his life that there was a connection to the divine. Perhaps the one that cut Jesus the deepest. You know, you kind of expect it from your enemies to cast aspersions and have doubts and lingering things. Even the, his disciples, you know, he pulled them out of some pretty obscure places and they were not necessarily, they, they were slow to catch up sometimes and you know, his mother had the other brothers, and she watched him grow up. It's, but one that might have shake, shaken Jesus a bit was found in Luke chapter 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 7. Notice what we find here. Starting with verse 18. It's a beautiful sound, isn't it? The rustling of leaves. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. Then the disciples of John, which John is this? John the Baptist, right? Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. Now where is John located that they're having to bring reports to him? He's in prison, right? He's languishing in prison while Jesus and his disciples are all out from all perspective, gallivanting with sinners and whatnot. And here he is, the faithful preacher of righteousness, locked in jail, seemingly ignored by the one who claimed to be from God. The circumstances drove John to 
express some doubt. Thus we read in verse 10, And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? John the Baptist's entire ministry was to prepare people for the reception of Jesus, and then when Jesus showed up to point to him and say, Behold, the Lamb of what? God, who takes away the sin of the world. He had done his duty faithfully. And now he had decreased while Jesus increased, but while he was in that dark place, doubt started to creep into his mind. It didn't look like the work that he thought the Messiah should be doing. Even John the Baptist, you study this out, had a picture of Roman domination where Jesus would come and overthrow the ruling power and set into motion a new kingdom. He didn't understand the nature of the kingdom of God. And so he asked, are you the one? Or do we look for another? Well, the story continues. Verse 20, when they had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now look very carefully at verse 21. What does Jesus say to that question? Not a word. Look at verse 21. And that very hour, right then and there, that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. He gets this question. Now, I'm trying to get another phrase out of my mind, I keep, out of my vocabulary. I keep saying things like, Let's think about this logically, but there's no other way to think, okay? So I'll just say, let's think about this together, shall we? Could Jesus have simply answered, yes, I'm the promised one? Sure. Would that have helped John? Well, maybe for a few minutes, right? Oh, good, he said yes. But you realize, if you ask someone, if they're the true Messiah, if they're a false Messiah, they're going to say, yes, I'm the true Messiah, right? Because that's what a liar would say. So just saying something, even if it's true, I, I, let's think about this. If someone, I, I won't say when someone accuses you of being a liar, but if someone were to ever accuse you of being a liar, you know what you can't say. No, I'm not. <laughs> you know Why? Because that's what a liar would say. <laughs> that really doesn't help. If there's a doubt, you can't just repeat even true things. At some point, you have to go from proclamation to demonstration. Satan had smeared the character of God in the universe above and right here on the earth for thousands of years. And when Jesus showed up, it wasn't to become righteous. It was to reveal a righteousness that had been there all along. But Satan had smeared it. And so Jesus could say it over and over and over, but what people needed to do was not hear it, they needed to see it lived out in the life. And Jesus saw this in John the Baptist, the same doubt, the same temptation to, to leave the faith. And what Jesus gives is so much more powerful than a direct answer, than a spoken word. He basically, I mean, you, he doesn't say a word. You get the picture. They come to him with this question that had to pierce Jesus' heart. But he turns and just maybe motions to them. It's like, come on. 
And he goes to this person, the next person, and they spent a day shadowing the benevolent work of Jesus Christ. And then, verse 22, Jesus answered and said, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard. That the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. The poor have the gospel preached to them. By the way, this rings back. Those are phrases lifted from Isaiah chapter 61. And when John the Baptist, Mrs. White makes this clear, hears this report and hears these activities, those phrases, because Jesus says, make sure you tell him what you see and make sure you say it in these words. So he goes back, he reviews the scripture in his mind from that jail cell, and his faith is renewed because Christ has demonstrated the evidence of divinity. His faith was built not just on someone's word, but on the word of God as lived out in the life of Jesus Christ. Desire of Ages 2.16 and 2.17. The evidence of his divinity was seen in its adaptation to the needs of suffering humanity. His glory was shown in his condescension to our low estate. The disciples bore the message, that is the disciples of John who went back to this jail cell. The disciples bore the message and it was enough. Now notice this statement. This is where we get into the application. The works of Christ not only declared him to be the Messiah, but showed in what manner his kingdom was to be established. So it wasn't just the evidence of his divinity, it was also the framework upon which his entire kingdom would be established. The replication of that type of ministry in the lives of his believers. We'll come back to that later, but if you, you can see, by the way, this, this life evidence of, of divinity in the ministry of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. Let me show you something fascinating. Of course, you know that Matthew, we're going to do a quick survey of the Gospel of Matthew, at least several chapters here. In Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus gives what is known as the what? The Sermon on the Mount. It begins with the Beatitudes, and he has other t- counsel there, but here Jesus gives this opening sermon to his public ministry, and throughout this he is articulating the high standards, the law of God. He talks about how the law is not just on the outside, but it goes all the way to the heart. He talks about, you have heard, but I tell you. He really deepens and broadens their understanding of God's expectation, his law, his high moral standard. Let me give you a few examples of what he says here. For instance, chapter 5, let's look at verse 16. We don't have time to read through the entire three chapters, but a few salient points. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 He says to the people, let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? Good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So this is a theme that he's telling his people. It's like you need to let people see the God in you through your good works that they can glorify your Father. Still the same chapter. Go down to verse 43. Matthew chapter 5, look what he says to do here. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Notice they've added a little piece of scripture. Sure, you should love your neighbor as yourself, but what about your enemy? Well, it's okay to hate them. It's like you've heard it twisted this way. It says, but I say to you, love your enemies. 
Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? I wonder if Matthew put that in there specifically. (laughs) That was a little barb to him. And if you greet your brethren only, what what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. He said, I want you to go about doing good to everybody. It's the evidence of divinity. A life of benevolence, of disinterested benevolence, is the evidence of divinity. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus talks about the charitable work we're supposed to do. Verse 1, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. I would love to, I don't know why that is so funny to me, but I would love to see someone like have a caller and and a herald go before them, sound a trumpet, and let them know they're about to do a humble thing. I'm about to do something very condescending and low. I'm about to help someone. Let's have everyone hear about it. But I guess the same things kind of happen today. And she said, don't, don't be that guy. Don't be like that. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing that your charitable deed may be seen in, may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Apparently, it's not just supposed to be a public display, a big one-time show. We're supposed to have a life, even on the small things, of a consistent, steady, underground benevolence. We're just supposed to come out of us. Reward or not. So Jesus takes Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and gives this Sermon on the Mount he articulates the standard of heaven, the moral characteristics that are to mark his people, and then he steps down from the mountain and he puts what he just said into practice. Okay? So the articulation, the proclamation happens on the mountain, and then he comes down the mountain and goes to work demonstrating the character of God. And if you go to Matthew chapter 8, and we certainly don't have to rhyme to read through everything, but if you have a Bible that has these headings in it, you know, kind of tells you what each little section's about, you'll notice that Matthew chapter 8 is full of not preaching and not even teaching, but full of healing and good works for others. Matthew chapter 8, for instance, Jesus heals a leper. Then he heals the centurion's servant. Then he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Then it says that many are healed. Then there's the relieving of two demon-possessed men, and that's Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 9, the saga continues. Jesus heals a paralytic, then the women, woman with the issue of blood, and then he brought a dead girl back to life, and then two blind men he gave sight, and a mute man he gives speech. And then look at Matthew in chapter 9, verse 35. Look at how this comes to a close towards the end of that chapter there. Verse 35, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and what's the other thing? healing every sickness and every disease among the people. There's always the combination of the preaching, teaching, and healing. 
And we often list them off as preaching, teaching, and healing, but we're listing them in reverse order. His first goal was always to relieve the wants and needs of the people, then to teach them the truth about God, and when necessary, preach a sermon. Then we go to Matthew chapter 10. Verse 1. After he articulates the, the standard in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, he demonstrates the application in the next two chapters, Matthew 8 and 9, then in chapter 10, what does he do? And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Skip down to verse 7. And as you go, he continues commanding them, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. And notice he gives a little thesis statement. Why they should do this? Freely you have received, freely give. Notice he says, I taught you, I showed you, now I'm sending you. Right? So Christ articulates the standard. He lives out that standard and then he sends others out in his name to do the same thing. Just reading Matthew's account of Christ's life makes it little wonder that after Jesus' ascension, when Peter preached the, Gent uh, the gospel to the Gentile Cornelius, he described Christ's entire ministry in basically one sentence. Go to Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. Notice how here Peter tries to sum up who had been with Jesus for three and a half years, who had a massive experience with Jesus, could have tell all kinds of things, but he tried to summarize Jesus' ministry for this Gentile convert. And in verse 38, says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing what? Good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for... God was with him. He said, let me tell you about the Jesus I recall, the Jesus I know, the testimony I can share about my time with him. Jesus was anointed by, with power by the Holy Spirit, and what did he do? He went about doing good and healing. That's who he was. There's a passage in James I'd like you to see. James chapter 1. Especially after a sermon like we had yesterday morning, you could get the impression that a life according to God's word and following in the character of Christ is a life of cutting out sins from your life, which it is, by the way. <laughs> but you could get the impression that that's all that we're called to do, is cut out the bad, Get rid of that television or that food that we're not supposed to eat or those clothes we're not supposed to wear or the language we're not supposed to have, the relationships we're not supposed to have, you know, that work on Sabbath morning. We're supposed to cut out all of those things. And our purity is seen in what we don't do. Now, friends, let me be clear. There is some stuff we should not be doing, and if you are doing it, stop. Amen? But at the same time, there's some good we should be doing, and if you're not doing it, start. James seems to get this picture right. 
James chapter 1, look at verse 27. The definition of pure religion, if you ever want to see what the high standard is, what it looks like the best, this is what James chapter 1, verse 27 says. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this definition. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Do you notice that? That there's the inward, we must keep ourselves pure, we must keep ourselves free from those iniquities and transgressions and sins and uh, have strength from the Lord to overcome temptation. And be, that is good, that is part of the picture. But our, our, our purity before God is not merely seen in what we don't do, but it also must be seen in what we do in the name of Christ. He says pure religion, yes, keeps you unspotted from the world, but also visits widows and orphans and takes care of those in need. That's what pure religion looks like. That's exactly what Jesus did, by the way. Jesus didn't smoke or drink or swear or carouse or do any of those things, but he didn't just sit around not doing. He went out and had a life of disinterested, benevolent ministry that literally changed the world. And I know it sounds like bad theology to say, but if you, you know, if you want to kind of have a litmus test of where you are in your walk with Christ and how your Christian character development is going, this is a fascinating statement, appropriately from the book Acts of the Apostles. It's page 551. It's so simple, it's so pure. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. I know it's a radical concept, but you know you're like Christ when you're like Christ. And I'm guessing you won't ever actually spot it in yourself, praise the Lord. But when Christ comes into your heart, it doesn't just change your ideas of theology and your views of your own behavior, but you start looking beyond yourself to caring for others. And you begin completing what Mrs. White would call the circuit of beneficence. You don't have to watch out for you and take care of your pleasure and your goods. and your, You start caring for other people and you become like Jesus. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. Now let's go to our study of the book of Acts. I want to show you that all the things that we've been talking about, the impulse to help and bless others just springs out of you when you're truly connected with Christ. That's the evidence of that divinity. That was demonstrated in the early church experience, at least at first. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. We've kind of been starting there each morning. Acts chapter 2, and we see here of course, we've already talked about how they heard the message of Peter, they repented, and 3,000 were baptized and added to them that day. Let's start with verse 44 and move on. Look at the life that they started to live with each other after their conversion experience, immediately after. It began to spring forth from them. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So as soon as there was a need, they were on it. 
They saw it, they did what they could to fix it, and it just happened. It's beautiful. Sold their possessions and good, divided them among all as anyone had need. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. There was an impulse to help and bless others that sprang forth from the newly converted heart. They saw those in need, they had what they had, so they did what they could with what they had to help those who didn't. They helped, they blessed. And it was a beautiful picture. Let's go two chapters to the right, to Acts chapter 4. As the church progresses, you're going to see something drift a little bit. It's subtle at first. But there's a dangerous drift in the early church that I believe we need to be aware of in our last day church. Acts chapter 4 now. Acts chapter 4, there's a speech and everything is uh, this powerful stuff that's going on and they had the prayer for boldness you're aware of that right let's start with verse 31 and when they had prayed this is a text that's so familiar to us the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the holy spirit and they spoke the word of god with boldness it sounds a whole lot like what we already saw in acts chapter 2 the holy spirit came down the word was preached with boldness and what's the result look here Now, verse 32, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, just like we saw in Acts chapter 2. Neither did anyone say that any of his own things that he possessed, of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Sounds like Acts chapter 2, doesn't it? And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. Now notice verse 35, add something you did not see in Acts chapter two. And laid them at the, what? Apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Do you notice the subtle difference? In Acts chapter two, they saw the need and they cared for it directly. In Acts chapter 4, they had the same spirit of benevolence, but they sold the possessions, but instead of going directly to the person, they went to the apostles to have them go to the person and distribute it. That's not inherently bad, but you do notice there's a shift. We're adding a middleman of benevolence. So the stuff that was distributed to those in need was being done by the apostles now instead of the individual believers themselves. Let's go two more chapters to the right to Acts chapter 6. Scripture reads, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Why? Because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Friends, who are the ones now responsible for the distributing of what for those in need? The apostles. And it says there arose a complaint. I like to make the joke. Now we have the first official church. (laughs) Because there arose a complaint. Like, oh, now that feels like home. That's a good 
But the issue was that the, the root of this problem in the church, this not getting along, was because the distribution was seen as unfair because the apostles were leading it out and everybody else was watching them do things and they started to bicker at them for not distributing fairly as they assumed. Verse 2, then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now there's nothing wrong something immoral, unethical, something, you know, disreputable about distributing. But notice what they're, and we're going to get into this tomorrow a bit more, but the disciples quickly saw that if we do this, if we become the curators of all the distribution, if we become the ones who are responsible for this, we're never going to leave this place. We're just going to hover and settle over this place and always be handing out stuff and solving disputes, and that's not our job. So we had the first nominating committee. Amen. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you, not from among us, from among you, seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we shall give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. One of the first miracles of the early church, verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. And it lists off the ones who were chosen. And it says in verse 7, Then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. But you saw the drift in Acts chapter 2. There is this idea we should be doing good for others, and at the beginning it went directly to the people. The individuals did that work. But then they shifted that responsibility more toward the apostles, and then when things were going right, they looked for them to solve it, and they were happy to have them be the distributors of all the goods. Let me read this statement to you from Ministry of Healing, page 147. Everywhere there is a tendency to substitute the work of organizations for individual effort. Human wisdom leads to consolidation, to centralization, to the building up of great churches and institutions. Multitudes leave to institutions and organizations the work of benevolence. They excuse themselves from contact with the world and their hearts grow cold. They become self-absorbed and unimpressible. Love for God and man dies out of the soul. Christ commits to his followers an individual work, a work that cannot be done by proxy. Ministry to the sick and the poor, the giving of the gospel to the lost, is not to be left to committees or organized charities. Individual responsibility, individual effort, personal sacrifice is the requirement of the gospel. In our Seventh-day Adventism, we have done phenomenal works of good deeds and benevolence around the world. We have healthcare institutions, publishing institutions, educational institutions, and praise God for those institutions. But friends, just because we have Loma Linda University out doing all kinds of advanced medical treatment does not get you off the hook for giving bread to your neighbor. See what I'm saying? Yes, give to Adra, but also be a living sacrifice in your own hometown. Sometimes it's easy to say, well, good, now we've got that taken care of. My job is to pray for their work and support them with my funds. Yes, pray for them, support them with your funds, but you still have a work to do. 
The evidence of divinity needs to be seen not only in our institutions, but in every individual member of God's church. A story is told, it's a true story, from right here in Michigan, mind you. It's great to be here. There's so much Adventist history. Every little town you go to, oh, this was where that happened. This person was here. That did, oh, it's great. And I assume, by the way, and maybe I'm wrong, but I just assume that everyone in Michigan knows all your own history. So if I tell an Adventist history story, like, yeah, we've known that for years, but pardon me if this is repetitive, but I want to share with you the story of Sister Hannah Moore. Hannah Moore was not a Seventh-day Adventist for most of her life, but she was a good Christian lady. She loved the Lord. She served him faithfully as a missionary of another denomination. I believe she was Baptist, but she was an overseas missionary in the mid-1800s and went to Africa Spent many years, over 20 years, I believe, in Liberia, West Africa, just above the equator. Quite a different climate than here in Michigan. But on furlough from her duties in 1863, she met a man by the name of Stephen Haskell. That's a name we know, yes? And he did the right thing and shared the gospel message with her. The present truth, including the Sabbath. She read the little tract. She became convinced convicted, and was converted to becoming a Sabbath-keeping member of God's church. In fact, but she wasn't done, by the way, with her missionary work. She said, I can still keep the Sabbath and go be a missionary. So she goes back to Africa, continues the missionary work, and during that time decides to share her new faith, her new faith, with her old friends, thinking that everyone will love this message. And they did not. She was relieved of her duties as a missionary, and she had to pay her own way and come home. But she kept the faith. She was sent back from Africa to the United States. She said, where should I go? Where do God's people meet? <gasps> Battle Creek, Michigan. James and Ellen White were out of town at that time, and they never actually met Hannah Moore in person. They had correspondence with her and communication, but never face-to-face. But here she is, this new convert from another denomination, Older, she spent a good deal of her life being a missionary. She's not a young person at this point. Straight from the mission field in West Africa, and her clothes were well-worn and um, at least some 20 years out of fashion. She looked a little different. She acted a little different. Her story was a little odd. She didn't have connections. She was an outsider, but wanting to come in. She spent weeks looking for work and housing in Battle Creek. And when no one would take her in, she had to stay in the Battle Creek Sanitarium because at least they had an institutional policy to help those in need for a short day. She spent a few days there, but when she finally ran out of money altogether and was still unable to find an Adventist family to take her in or an Adventist proprietor to give her work, she turned to her Baptist friends and former co-workers, some of which lived in northern Michigan. By the, t- the way, the, the town that she was staying in was Leland. Do we, we know where that is? Okay, if you go to the North Pole and just head south, it's just, just right about there. Pretty sure they still have some snow on the ground right now. <laughs> but where had she been serving as a missionary? 
Africa, just above the equator. And she has to go and face her first winter in the States again in Leland, Michigan. The accommodations weren't so great. She had rather poor living conditions. The other people that she stayed with weren't wealthy either, and they had her in a little loft apartment above the living room there where the stovepipe would come through. And it wasn't sealed very well. It leaked smoke and gases into her room. Little ventilation, you know. And it wasn't long before she came down with tuberculosis. Now, since her arrival in Battle Creek, she had been in correspondence with James and Ellen White. They were away from Michigan. I believe they were in Maine at the time, but they were determined when they heard her story that we're going to come back when we get home. We're going to, well, you can come to our house. They just needed to get home, and, but the winter had started to set in, and Sister Moore was kind of stuck until the next spring could thaw out, you know, and give her an opportunity to come back down. In February of 1868, Sister Moore wrote in part the following to James White. My dear Brother White, yours of February 3 is received. It found me in poor health, not being accustomed to these cold northern winters, with the snow three or four feet deep on a level. Our mails are brought on, snow, uh, on snowshoes. It does not seem possible for me to get to you till spring opens. The roads are bad enough without the snow. They tell me the best way is to wait till navigation opens, then go to Milwaukee and thence to Grand Haven to take the railroad to the point nearest your place. I had hoped to get among our dear people last fall, but was not permitted that privilege. The truths which we believe seem more and more important, and our work of making ready a people prepared for the Lord's coming is not to be delayed. We must not only have on the wedding garment ourselves, but be faithful in recommending the preparation to others. I wish I could get to you, but it seems impossible, or at least impracticable, in my delicate state of health to set out alone on such a journey in the depth of winter. She goes on to say, I think my health has suffered from keeping the Sabbath alone in my chamber in the cold. But I did not think I could keep it where all manner of work and worldly conversation was the order of the day, as with Sunday keepers. Oh, how I long to be again with Sabbath keepers. I've had a difficulty in breathing so that I have not been able to sleep for more than a week. Occasioned, I suppose, by the stovepipes parting and completely filling my room with smoke and gas at bedtime, and my sleeping there without proper ventilation. I did not at the time suppose the smoke was so unwholesome, nor consider that the impure gas which generated from the, war, from the wood and coal was mingled with it. I awoke with such a sense of suffocation that I could not breathe lying down and spent the remainder of the night sitting up. I never before knew the dreadful feeling of stifling sensations. I began to fear I should never sleep again. I therefore resigned myself into the hands of God for life or death, entreating him to spare me if he had any further need of me in his vineyard. Otherwise, I had no wish to live. That was written in February of 1868. One month later, in March of 1868, 
Sister Hannah Moore died, still waiting for help from the Adventists he showed dearly loved, but who did not love her so dearly in return. There are several different places where Mrs. White talks about the experience of Sister Hannah Moore and the lessons we should take from her. One of those is found in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2. I'll read from page 140. In the case of Sister Hannah Moore, I was shown that the neglect of her was the neglect of Jesus in her person. Had the Son of God come in the humble, unpretending manner in which he journeyed from place to place when he was upon the earth, he would have met with no better reception. It is the deep principle of love that dwelt in the bosom of the humble man of Calvary that is needed. Had the church lived in the light, they would have appreciated this humble missionary whose being was aglow to be engaged in her master's service. Her very earnest interest was misconstrued. Her externals were not just such as world as would meet the approval of the eye and of taste and fashion, for familiarity with strict economy and poverty had left its impress upon her apparel. Her hard-earned means had been exhausted as fast as obtained to benefit others, to get light to those whom she hoped to lead to the cross of truth. And in Testimonies, Volume 1, page 674, we read this. She, speaking of Hannah Moore, might have been a blessing to any Sabbath-keeping family who could appreciate her worth, but she sleeps. Our brethren at Battle Creek and in this vicinity could have made more than a welcome home for Jesus in the person of this godly woman, but that opportunity has passed. It was not convenient. They were not acquainted with her. She was advanced in years and might be a burden. Feelings of this kind barred her from the homes of the professed friends of Jesus who are looking for his near advent and drove her away from those she loved to those who opposed her faith to northern Michigan in the cold of winter to be chilled to death. She died a martyr to the selfishness and covetousness of professed commandment keepers. It's little wonder when we read stories of this. When we go back and see Jesus' description of his own second coming in Matthew chapter 25, the distinguishing characteristic between the saved and the lost is not necessarily a knowledge of Bible truth, but an application of biblical principle in the life. You know, the seal of God, yes, is the seventh-day Sabbath, but on the forehead, that means it's the, it's the name of God, it's the character of God impressed on each of his people. And this is what the determining issue will be in the last days. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. And he will set his sheep on the right hand, but his goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared to you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison. And you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? 
And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it also to me. Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Do you notice in the story that both the righteous and the wicked in response to the declaration of Jesus Christ have the identical word for word same response? Lord, when did we see you? In the case of the wicked, I'm guessing they said it this way. Lord, when did we see you? I mean, if we'd have known it was you, sure. If you were hungry, we'd have put on a potluck. We're great at that. Man, we'd have, had, we'd have done community services, prison ministries. We'd have done this. We'd have canned food, drive the pastors without doing that door to door. We'd have done what it took to take care of you. But it wasn't you. It was just, you know, people. Now, righteous, on the other hand, say, Lord, when did we see you? I never saw you hungry or thirsty or sick or prison. I mean, what? We never saw you. We just saw people. And that's just what we do when people need help. And Christ is like, that's my point. You didn't know it was me, and you did it anyway. You fit in. Come on in. Christian service, page 191. We're coming to a close. I saw that it is in the providence of God that widows and orphans, the blind, the deaf, the lame, and persons afflicted in a variety of ways have been placed in close Christian relationship to his church. It is to prove his people and develop their true character. Angels of God are watching to see how we treat these persons who need our sympathy, love, and disinterested benevolence. This is God's test of our character. If we have the true religion of the Bible, we shall feel that a debt of love, kindness, and interest is due to Christ in behalf of his brethren, and we can do no less than to show our gratitude for his immeasurable love to us while we were sinners, unworthy of his grace, by having a deep interest and unselfish love for those who are our brethren and who are less fortunate than ourselves. There's a reason why Christ went around healing and helping before he went teaching and preaching. It was to demonstrate the evidence of divinity. Friends, here's my point. Good works give credibility to our message. And our message, in turn, gives significance to our good works. I'm going to say that again. Good works give credibility to our message. And our message gives significance to our good works. The two go hand in hand. Friends, not only do we need the message of Jesus Christ in these last days, we need the method of Jesus Christ. 
So I appeal to you today. When you go back from camp meeting, you can start now, it's okay. When you see someone who needs help, not just because of a big program, a logo, or icon, or something to it, just because you see the need, help. Go home, support those ministries that in your local church and the area that are trying to do those things. And I would say, please, let them be seven-day Adventists. Let them have the distinct message, too. Go back and help out with the community service center. On almost every community service center in the Seventh-day Adventist church, it's run by one or two 85-year-old people. When all the young, healthy, robust, energetic people are off doing who knows what else. I'm sure it's good things, working, doing, I'm not putting it down, having a family, but surely we can do better. Prison ministries. Don't be afraid to go into the prison. They're all locked up. It's going to be fine. But they need the word of God too. They need encouragement. In fact, they might be more at a place to receive the gospel convicted of their issues than other people who are outside those walls. Help them. Bring Jesus to them. Work with the homeless shelters in your areas. Let me just tell you this very quickly. Elder Howard mentioned Unlock Revelation. I went and I have his permission to share this story, but a young man, and I would ask you to pray for him by name. His name is Ryan. Had the opportunity to preach in Kalamazoo with the men's shelter downtown a few times before Unlock Revelation started. It's a very interesting thing. You'll have like 80 to 100 people in the room. They're like, roll call, sit, listen. Here's a preacher, go. <laughs> they all just listen. I'm like, good evening, folks. Yeah. <laughs> they listen. Hey, if I got an audience that's going to listen, I'm going to preach. And the, the gentlemen were kind. They were appreciative. They were fine. And one young man introduced himself to me. And he mentioned that he had been a student at Great Lakes Academy. He'd gotten off into a life of selfishness and ended up in drugs and alcohol and all those things. And there he was down there at the homeless shelter. And I praise the Lord that the Lord has been working in his life. His father helped him, brought him out to unlock revelation. And right now he's trying to pull out of that hole and get his life right with Jesus Christ. Keep him in prayer. But down in those places, there are our brothers, there are our sisters, there are our children. Friends, being Christ-like means like being like Jesus. Let me ask you a question again. Has our message today been clear? Friends, go beyond mere convincing that it's true or convicting. Let the Holy Spirit power convert each and every one of us to be more like Jesus, to represent his character in the world. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for giving us a life at all and the opportunity for eternal life, neither of which we deserved or merited in our own. But because of your disinterested benevolence, because you just love and care, you sent your only Son to be a missionary, to help in our time of need. Lord, help us to truly be Christians today. Let us be like Jesus Christ. Let others see the evidence of divinity and the reflection of your character. Let them see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. 
Lord, we understand that our good works are not here to save us. But Lord, through our good works, please save others. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And let them be seen in our people today, tomorrow, and until Jesus comes. Make us like Jesus until we see Jesus face to face. For we pray in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.